From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees will have new choices for dental and vision coverage in 2021. The Federal Employees Dental and Vision Program will add two new dental carriers and a new vision carrier next year. The Federal Times reports open season runs November 9th through December 14th this year. The Office of the Chief Information Officer at the Agriculture Department will give IT specialists early retirement options. According to Federal News Network, the eligible employees include everyone in the 2210 series. The agency says it will expect employees it accepts for the early retirement to complete federal service by September 30th. The Bureau of Land Management heads, uh, headquarters is officially out of Washington. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's memo says the Bureau's headquarters is open immediately in Grand Junction, Colorado. The Bureau's been in Washington since its creation in 1946. The Government Accountability Office says the Chief Financial Officers Act needs a refresh after 30 years. The office has nine new recommendations for Congress to modernize the act. Dave Mader's Civilian Sector Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Christy Johnson is principal at Deloitte. Welcome both of you. Thanks for coming on the program. Christy, I want to start with you. This is a typical uh, GAO report in that there is progress made and challenges remaining. What's the progress that uh, the GAO saw and that you see in uh, executing on the vision of the CFO Act? Yeah, so the CFO community should be very proud of the progress they've made, particularly from a leadership perspective. So right now it's very clear on what OMB does, the Department of Treasury and the CFO Council. And we've really seen the CFO role elevated in the organization become a better business partner. The next step for them is really now that we've got financial management shored up is to tie performance more closely to execution and figure out return on investment, which really are the key points in the JO recommenda recommendations. So Dave, Christy nailed the one, one of the two of these five areas GAO looked at that jumped out at me. The other one for me was financial management systems. It strikes me that what, not just relative to what GAO is talking about, but anecdotally what we learn about what's happening in financial management systems. Agencies still struggle with just the nuts and bolts of how they do financial management, don't they, Dave? Yeah, and you know, I've been working in this field for, you know, more than 20 years. and. We've made incremental progress when I was at OMB. I think we, you know, setting up USSM at GSA. I actually think the uh, the move by this administration to set up the Quality Service Management Organization and designate the Department of Treasury to oversee that will will continue the journey. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons over the years that one size does not fit all. While we can standardize processes and you know data definitions. We need to be cognizant of the uniqueness of each of the department's missions and sort of tailor a solution based on their mission delivery uh, imperatives. The only potential downfall of the QSMOs that I see, Dave, is the fact that their uh, Treasury's offering these services. I don't recall a mandate that the agencies need to use them. Is that something that you think is necessary at some point in the future or maybe should have happened when the QSMOs rolled out? There, there is a provision uh, in the QSMO for an exception 
where they can come in and make a business case as to why they should not use one of the services or products that the QSO offers. And I think, I think we, and again, that's a reflection on, you need to understand particularly uniqueness of missions. And I, you know, we'll wait and see as to who comes in and asks for an exception going forward. Um, Christy, the, the point that you made about leadership was very well taken. The progress that agencies have made is uh, you're right on target with those, but it strikes me one of the recommendations, one of the observations that GAO made about the challenges is, is fairly surprising to me. CFOs would benefit from standardized financial management responsibilities to provide them with the necessary authorities to achieve the full potential, potential of the CFO Act. It's a little surprising to me that we're not there already. What would make that work? Should that come from OMB or where should that kind of standardization come from? Yeah, so, you know, when you think of the first CFO Act, it really was let's short financial management. The next generation of CFO management really does need to focus on creating span of control and consistency across the CFO position across the federal government. Most recently, Deloitte completed a study with the Partnership for Public Service, and we found that the roles and responsibilities still are not consistent, which doesn't allow for further collaboration, as long as, as well as comparing and contrasting the return on investment that various CFOs are pushing with their organizations. Christy, what structure would make, make that work well? And is that up to not just OMB to say, agencies, you're supposed to do this, but then also the agencies to actually get it done? Yes, absolutely. So it really needs to be a partnership with the agencies as well as OMB. You know, I think the other thing that we're starting to see, as I mentioned, is that, you know, the CFO is a better business partner. And since the initial CFO Act, you've had the creation of new government positions, very important executive positions, the chief data officer, the chief information officer. But what's happened with that is a distillation of managerial reporting. And really the CFOs are in prime commitment prime position to do such. And by standardizing the role of CFOs of what's in what they have control of and purview over will allow them to be that better business partner. And again, it has to be in partnership with the agencies and OMB. Christy and Dave, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Appreciate your time. Thank you, friends. Thanks for having us. Up next, improving human-centered design. Straight ahead on Government Matters, anticipating your customers' needs before they become needs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. General Services Administration's prioritized human-centered design as part of its Centers of Excellence initiative at the Department of Agriculture and other agencies. Facilitated or predictive human-centered design could help agencies stay one step ahead of the needs of its customers. Frontis Wiggins is partner at I3Core. He's former Chief Information Officer at the State Department. Frontis, you're writing about this issue in LinkedIn. And first of all, kudos to you for the WHO reference. The title is Meet the New Boss, Same as the Old Boss. Had a discussion in the newsroom this morning about what that meant, which made me feel really old. But that's a whole different issue. What, you write about four issues that we're taking away regarding human-centered design from the COVID crisis. Walk me through these, Frontis. 
Sure. So first off, uh, thank you for having me on the show, Francis. It's great to see you again. Uh, and I think the first thing related to human-centered design that I clicked on is that oftentimes human-centered design deals with the immediacy crisis. You know, what's right in front of you? What's the immediate problem? It, because when you talk to customers and end users to try and solve their problems, you really do have to focus on what's the immediate itch that you're trying to scratch. And so the idea is that we have to think beyond the immediate problems to also look towards the future because you have fixers and you have futurists. And oftentimes human-centered design focused primarily on the fixers. And I think the futurists, the ones that can see beyond the horizon are the ones that need to be brought in to assist with uh, enhanced human-centered design under augmented human-centered design. Another concept you're writing about that I think is maybe the most important of the four is that you're seeing a hard line, you write, between countries and individuals with digital populations and those that don't have digital populations. What do you mean by digital population and why is that the line of demarcation in your view? It's a, an excellent question. Uh, what I mean by a digital population is individuals who are well, well understand the ability to do things online and have the facility to do it either through government resources or their own resources. And I drew the example of Denmark, which while a small country has one of the most digitized populations in the world. In fact, they can do most of their social services online. Everyone has a national ID and they have a connectivity. And I remember working with a company when I was still CIO of the Department of State that talked about the fact that they help streamline the processes for citizens to be able to do 90% of the things they need to do online without ever appearing in person. Uh, in fact, they were able to, it's not a very nice example, but uh, get divorce process in Denmark down to a two-day process. And in fact, the, the ministry had to request that they extend that out so people would take a little longer to think about it. So when I talk about a digital nation or digital population, it's folks who have access to resources and connectivity to do things without having to go in person into an office. And that's what's, I think, driving a lot of the thought processes around COVID and the current crisis, because we are having to stand off and not be able to spend as much time in human-to-human -human interaction. And so that digitization process and the connectivity process is what separates those digitized or uh, digital nations from the non-digital nations. Is that a chicken or egg issue though? Because it strikes me that the customer, the, the citizen customer in the United States today expects a digital process and more often than not is disappointed when she interacts with the federal government and state and local too, to be fair, and doesn't have that digital experience. Well, that's exactly uh, exactly a point I make later on in the article, and that the two things have to happen in parallel. The federal agencies and state agencies that serve the citizenry have to be digitized themselves and have their uh, uh, services available on online, but then you have to be able to connect the citizens to them. So they should be happening in parallel. Uh, and you're right, it's a chicken and egg. Uh, I would argue that uh, the digitization, modernization of the federal government and their federal systems is a an ongoing project uh, or a program that may never end. Uh, connectivity, just raw connectivity for the citizenry is something else that I think could be turned into a project and in fact is a project that's ongoing. But you're right, it is a chicken and egg and I think they have to happen in parallel. Uh, another point that you make is that many people now are living where they work and the fluidity of the location of work 
will change, it, it strikes me, the nature of the delivery of a human-centered design system. What are you seeing as far as that goes for us? Well, it's an excellent point, Francis. And the issue really is that mobility with security, but access to valid data is what's driving that. Uh, oftentimes, individuals are living where they work, and yet their agencies don't have the ability for them to do full functionality from their remote locations. And so it gets back to the earlier point that you were making about the fact that those government agencies and the individuals who work for them, or corporations even, uh, that work for uh, work remotely, don't have the facilities that they need or connectivity to the systems because we always assume that we would be doing face-to-face -face in the office work for time immemorial. Well, I think we've been rudely awakened to the fact that that's changed. So we just have a minute or so left for us. What's the preparation in your view for the next normal look like when we can't even really predict that what that is? We can't predict how many people in the federal government we expect to go back to work or, or be back in the office 18 months from now. When all of this is so fluid, how do you strategize something like that? Uh, that's, that's the $64,000 question if I date myself to a very old TV show. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I would say it's twofold. Number one, the federal systems have to be modernized to the point where their services are available online and the citizenry has to connect to it. But then beyond that, we have to think about things like augmented reality and virtual reality and AI because just interacting with a chatbot is not enough. You need to be able to do things in real time with assistance through some kind of avatar that is more intelligent than what we have in a lot of our current call centers or chatbots. So thinking towards the future, it's that robotic processing, it's augmented reality, and it's the also futuristic viewpoint of individuals to try and meld those things together to enhance this, the services that our citizens receives. Frontis Wiggins, thanks very much. It's great to see you. Thank you, Francis. All the best. Up next, the first ever guiding document for the Space Force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's in it and what it means for warfare in space. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Space Force has a new doctrine that outlines its approach to military conflict in space. The Force will use the Space Capstone document when it creates future documents and develops training programs in the future. Todd Harrison is director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, thanks very much for coming on. Big takeaway from this for you, was it the fact that they put one out at all or was there something here that struck you as extremely significant? Yeah, I mean, this has very much been expected that we would get a doctrine uh, document like this out of the Space Force not long after its uh, creation. I think, you know, this document does several things. First and foremost, perhaps uh, the most important thing it does is it sets the taxonomy uh, for how we talk about space as a warfighting domain. Uh, a lot of the document goes through uh, and comes up with definitions and specific terms and you know what they're going to mean and how they're going to be used uh, that allows space operators to more effectively communicate with the operators in other warfighting domains. Uh, and so I think that is actually very essential 
Uh, it's a necessary first step, so that's an important contribution of this document. The other thing that it does is it puts space in the context of the other warfighting domains. It actually uses a lot of the same con concepts and terminology that we use in other domains and applies them to space, right? So it's kind of a, a translator, if you will, uh, between space operators and warfighters in other domains. So I think that is probably the most important purpose that this document serves. Uh, is uh, The construct here is pretty straightforward, uh, lays out three cornerstone responsibilities of the Space Force, five core competencies, and then seven space power disciplines, and it indicates that one doesn't feed down and then feed down, that they, they go all three working together uh, in, in one vertical. Is that similar to what we see in, in other documents for, for the other domains? It is. It's a similar construct, um, and you know, really, what it's doing is it's defining why space power is important. It's defining how space power will be employed, and then it's defining what are the skills and the type of expertise that we need uh, in order to employ space power to support the military. Uh, so, you know, those are all important things that are contained in this document. The other thing, as you noted earlier, that this is a capstone document. Uh, and it specifically says that there's going to be two other levels of doctrine that come out. Uh, an intermediate level uh, is going to be a you know operational doctrine, and then the lowest level is going to be uh, tactical doctrine. And interesting to me, and I think this could be a departure from uh, other domains, is those tactical doctrine documents are really like standard operating procedures. And it says in there that they are going to be essentially living documents, that they will be online and they will be constantly revised and updated. And so I think that uh, reflects the dynamic nature uh, of space operations and how we have to be able to adapt very quickly. Uh, you can't just set things in doctrine and lock it in and only review it you know, every few years. Uh, at the tactical level, it has to be evolving continuously. So I confess I'm not the most tactical thinker in the world, that I tend to think um, more linear, but it strikes me that I understand the spirit of, of what they're going for there. How do you propagate those changes to the people who need to know them rather than just sticking them on a website and having somebody realize at some point in the future, oh, they changed that a little while ago? Well, I think this is one of the you know more uh, unique, uh, different ways that uh, space operators differ from operations in other domains is it's actually a very small community of people. And when you're talking about you know the people who operate, let's say, GPS satellites, for example, uh, that's a very small group of people. Uh, and so it is easier to change things more quickly and keep them more up to date and just tell everyone, whenever you go to look for the standard operating procedure, the current document is the online document. Uh, and so, I, you know, that's something that you wouldn't be able to do, you know, like in your ground forces where you've got, you know, uh, tens of thousands of operators out there on the front line spread across the globe. Um, space is very different. The operations are, are much more tightly confined with smaller groups of people. You also have decades of doctrine documents that people would need to wade through in the other forces as well. Um, we talked a little bit, Todd, before we went on the air about the fact that an, another potential significance here is that if there wasn't a space force, we might not see this at all. What's the significance of that in your view? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, before the Space Force was created, a lot of people were criticizing the idea, saying, well, it's premature to create a service before you have well-defined space doctrine. Uh, but the argument back was always, well, you're not going to get well-defined space doctrine until you have a service that's dedicated to it. Uh, and I think that this is proof of that, that it took creating a space force to get this doctrine development process started. You know, the military has been operating in space for more than 60 years. Uh, and during that 60 years, we didn't have a document like this. Uh, and so it really, this is a reflection of why a space force was needed uh, and why it's gonna help improve our operations in space going forward. 30 seconds left. You don't think this document would have happened. You don't think this doctrine would have happened absent a space force that the other branches would have been able to agree on it. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, no, it absolutely wouldn't have happened. We had 60 years for it to happen and it didn't. Uh, and, you know, while the Air Force did publish some space doctrine documents, if you read them, it's really focused about how space can be used to support the air domain. And that's really traditionally how the Air Force viewed space uh, as an enabler for air operations. And in reality, you know, space supports all of the other domains and space primarily supports the land and the maritime domains more than it supports the air domain. So it really took an independent service to get this joint all domain uh, focused view of space doctrine. Todd Harrison, thanks very much as always. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.